Praise the Lord. Good morning, church. It's a great privilege to be standing before you today to, um, to share the Word of God with you, to open up the Scriptures, and um, uh, just to be here is a great joy. Uh, we, should, we should really have joy that the Lord has gathered His people together on this day, and He does so all around the world to, to, to proclaim um, the glories of His wonderful name. Uh, open your Bibles, if you will, please, to um, Luke uh, chapter 24. Luke 24. And if you don't have a Bible, um, there are some black hardcover Bibles that are scattered throughout the sanctuary and the seat trays in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, that is our gift to you today, so please take that home with you. I'm going to uh, refer back uh, to parts of the first uh, 12 verses that uh, were read just a few minutes ago, but uh, we're going to spend most of our time today uh, actually in verses 13 uh, through 48. Uh, that is the text we're going to focus on throughout a history, and even more so today, people have believed and continue to believe that the God of the Old Testament is, uh, is different than the God of the New Testament. Not necessarily a different being, but uh, that His personality and attitude towards things has somehow changed after Jesus came to the earth. They see the Old Testament God as a God of wrath and anger, and the God of the New Testament as a God of love and grace. Maybe there are some even in this room today who think that way or have that picture of God. Some may think that the God who created the world and all things in it, who created man in His image and declared all things to be good, never accounted for the possibility that man would ever fall. And so after the debacle in the Garden of Eden, God spent the next 4,000 years or so scratching His head, trying to come up with plan B, another way to get people to heaven and back into a right relationship with Him. And then all of a sudden, one day, this idea pops into His head that He'll send His only Son to the earth to provide salvation to those who would believe. A crazy idea, a crazy plan that He would send His Son to die so that we could be saved. And so the Old Testament God, who was full of all this anger, became this New Testament God who made an easier way for people to get to heaven. And apart from the fact that God did indeed send His Son into the world, there's nothing in the Bible that describes God this way. And in our text today, I want us to see that God's plan for Jesus to come into the world to save sinners was the plan from the beginning. In fact, it was the plan before the beginning. In John's letter to the seven churches, Revelation, he tells us that the names of those who will enter heaven have been written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. And because of this, it should give us great comfort and confidence that what God has promised shall indeed come to pass for those who believe. Not only this, but we can trust the Scriptures, all of it, to be all-sufficient, all-satisfying, and everything that we need to know about God, our great God and our glorious Savior. And so if you would, please stand out of honor and reverence for the reading as we look at this text, Luke chapter 24. And again, I'm going to read from verse 13 down through uh, verse 48. The Word of God says, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. 
And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And as they stood still, looking sad, and one of them said, one of them named Cleopas answered him and said, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has indeed risen and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word, Lord. Um, It is food, Lord, for our souls. Lord, may we treasure it, Father, and may the words that we just read, Lord, and as we spend this time, Lord, thinking about these things, Father, may, may the Scriptures, Lord, just become more alive to us today, God. 
May we see Jesus Christ, Lord, from beginning to end, that, that His name is written all over the book. And I pray, Lord, that as this message goes out, Lord God, that You would be honored, Father, through the preaching of Your Word. Lord, that You would grant everyone here today, Lord, ears to hear, Father, what You would have us to hear. And we pray, God, that the Word would just stir us, Lord, the way that these men on the road were stirred by the, by the words that they heard. So, Father, use this time, Father. Use this time to grow us, to teach us, and for Your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be focusing on the verses that we just read, but I want to take a few moments to, to fill in everything that has happened up to this point. The first 12 verses of this chapter pick up after the burial of Jesus in Joseph of Arimathea's borrowed tomb. And we're told there in verse 1 that there are some who go to the tomb on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. And although they would have certainly been aware of Jesus' words regarding His rising from the dead and probably the words of others, Luke's gospel alone uh, accounts for six resurrection predictions. So those who went to the tomb were not expecting, though, to see a risen Jesus. And the text shows us that they were not expecting this because if you see where it says that they took spices there that they had prepared, those spices would have been, use, would have been used to actually anoint uh, the decaying body. And so they were showing, they were, the text shows us that they were actually not going to see a resurrected Jesus, but they were expecting to see a body there. But they find the tomb empty, and then they're met by two angels who say to them, and if you see in verse 5, they say to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day. So this sparks their memories of Jesus' words, and they head back to the eleven and the other disciples who were gathered together to tell them what had happened. Now the eleven, you may be thinking, uh, at this point, the eleven is just a title for, these, for the people, the apostles who were there. We know from other gospel accounts that Thomas was not with them at this time. So the eleven actually refers to a title for the apostles, not the actual number uh, who were there. And of course, Judas is not among the living anymore. So, uh, so they go back. And I want you to notice there, though, in verse 5, the word must. It says there that um, while he was still in Galilee, he said that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. In other translations, it might say necessary. It was necessary that this took place. And it emphasizes the necessity of God's providential plan being fulfilled. And I mention it because as we get further into the text today, you're going to see this emphasis repeated. And it's important that you understand this because it's foundational to the point of the sermon today. Now in verse 10 it says that, and this might seem trivial and unimportant, but verse 10 says that there were at least five women, perhaps more, who went to the tomb that day. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women. So there was at least five there. And verse 11 tells us that their words seemed to be an idle tale or nonsense to those who were there. That term, by the way, was used in everyday Greek to refer to delirious stories that were told by the very sick people as they suffered or they were in great pain. Or it referred also to tales told by those who failed to perceive reality, almost like people who were delusional. In Jesus' day, the women's reports uh, were not considered, or women actually were not considered to be credible witnesses, and this is why many who heard their report 
did not really believe uh, what had happened at Jesus' tomb, probably viewing it as nonsense. But Luke here is not hiding anything. He's not trying to make the story more believable. In fact, the, 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 the point that he includes these women's account shows with what high regard he holds them. But Peter, even though he may have been somewhat skeptical himself, is hopeful. And in verse 12, it says that he rose and he ran to the tomb. He saw that it was indeed empty, and he went away marveling or amazed at what had happened. And in some cases, that word marvel in the Greek, it's used in a sort of in a a negative way, sort of like in disbelief. But more often than not, it's used uh, as a positive response. And you can imagine Peter as he went to the tomb on the heels of his denial of Jesus, the emotions that must have been running through him. John chapter 20 actually tells us that Peter and John ran to the tomb together, and both of them saw the grave clothes lying there, and it says John believed, but here it says Peter marveled. So at this point, the events of the day shift to two individuals. And what we have before us in this text is one of the most vivid and insightful accounts of the appearance of Jesus after His resurrection. Luke is the only one of the four gospel writers to include this event. And from an application standpoint, I believe that one of the reasons the Lord gave these words for Luke to write is because it reveals to us something about who we are. And also to remind us that as we share the, excuse me, share the gospel with others, that it's Jesus who opens the eyes of unbelievers to see Him for who He is. And He causes the heart to believe that God raised Him from the dead, a belief, according to Romans 10, 9 and 10, that is necessary for a person to be saved. And so this journey to Emmaus is both a literal and a spiritual journey. It's an event that actually took place, but on a higher level, if you will, it outlines the journey that every true follower of Jesus Christ takes from not recognizing Him for who He claimed to be, to understanding what the Scriptures say about Him, to believing what the Scriptures say about Him, to submitting to Him for who He is, and finally, to our bearing witness to others of this glorious truth. So the first thing that I want to note today in your outline there, in your bulletin, see if this is working, okay, is the discouragement of a confused heart. Now, I confess these notes, the outline today is something I borrowed from the late Adrian Rogers. He was so good with words, and he was really Baptist about these things. So I like the points, and they go well with the sermon. So I wanted to share these with you um, uh, that were actually his points for a sermon that he preached on this very same text. But the discouragement of a confused heart. Verse 13 says, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. So again, that very day is the first day of the week, Sunday. Uh, The conversation takes place as two disciples are walking to Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, possibly after having celebrated the Passover uh, in Jerusalem. And in light of the recent events, of course, again, this is three days removed from the the big event, which is the crucifixion. Uh, In light of these recent recent events, they probably had a lot to talk about, much in the same way that political news sparks a lot of discussion amongst ourselves even today. And the two of them in the text refers to two who were gathered with the eleven and the other disciples when the women came to report what they had seen. And likely Peter's experience as well, which is explained further down there in verses 20 through 24, which we'll get to. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now some translations say that they were discussing and arguing Uh, which is probably more accurate. 
And the fact that they were arguing about what happened shows that there really was no agreement among Jesus' disciples about what had really occurred and why. Like Peter at the tomb, they were amazed and yet probably not fully convinced. So as they journey, a man joins them. Now, of course, we know that this is Jesus, but verse 16 says that their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. We don't really know how Jesus did that, but I believe that this gradual revelation of Himself as they make their way allows them to learn certain lessons about trusting God's promises. The disciples had been told about these events many times, but they cannot conceive how they they could have come to pass. Jesus drives home the point vividly and calls on them to remember God's Word while trusting that what He says will indeed come to pass. And as we remember God's promises, we should rest in them. Charles Spurgeon said, When two saints are talking together, Jesus is very likely to come and make the third one in the company. Talk of Him, and you will soon talk with Him. He said, This was most natural, for what is uppermost in the heart will soon be uppermost upon the tongue. They had had their minds greatly exercised concerning the departure of their Lord, and it was only natural that they should speak of it. If we never talk of Christ, we have great reason to suspect whether He is really in our hearts at all. So Jesus asked the two in verse 17, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And their countenance says it all. And they stood still, looking sad. Their faces were downcast. The Greek word there, the Greek word is skutropos, which also means discouraged or looking sullen. For these disciples, hope had been buried in the tomb three days earlier. In fact, one of them, Cleopas, is shocked that the stranger is unaware of the recent events. The irony in his question can hardly be overstated. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Look, if anyone knows... It's the one who's talking to them. But to draw them out, he asked them about their discussion. Verse 19, he said to them, what things? So recounting his life, they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Now their description, though accurate in one sense, also lacks insight. First, he's referred to by the name where he was from, Nazareth. If you recall, in John 1.46, Nathanael asks concerning Jesus, can anything good come out of Nazareth? One commentator wrote, the reason Nathanael has trouble with Jesus' coming from Nazareth is probably because the Messiah was not expected to be associated with Nazareth. Nathanael's question is usually understood as a negative one, Though some of the church fathers took the tone as positive, that something good could come from Nazareth. It's probably neither entirely negative nor positive, but simply a genuine question expressing his doubts. He has reason to question whether Jesus is the one promised, but he is open to the possibility that Jesus is, as his subsequent action and confessions show. Well, second here in the text, they refer to him as a prophet, which again is accurate, but inadequate really. Many people believe that Jesus was a prophet. It's mentioned in Luke's gospel several times, chapters 4, chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 13. And in fact, this view of Jesus, when comparing him to a prophet like Moses, correctly reflects an aspect of his ministry, but not fully in light of who he actually claimed to be, the true, long-awaited Messiah. 
Well, they begin to get closer. The text says, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. They would have remembered his miracles, his casting out of demons, teaching with authority, his claims to have the authority to forgive sin. John Calvin said the addition of these words ought not to be reckoned superfluous or unnecessary, for they mean that the, that the high excellence of Christ was so well known and was demonstrated by such undoubted proofs that he had no hypocrisy or vain ostentation. In other words, he was not a show-off. He didn't do things to impress other people. He goes on, and hence we may obtain a brief definition of a true prophet, namely that to what he speaks he will likewise add power in action and will not only endeavor to appear excellent before men, but to act with, with sincerity as under the eyes of God. But what did they not say about him? Well, they didn't say, we thought he was the Son of God. As did many people in Jesus' day, no one could question the validity of the things he had done, not even the religious leaders. But the question, could this really be, always seemed to linger. Verse 20, they continue, And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Now, if you pay attention closely to the things that they just said, you'll see that they had not fully understood the real reason why Jesus died, his true identity, or the divine obligation and necessity of his death. In their eyes, the chief priests and the rulers were the ones responsible. Their hope was that, in verse 23, that he was the one to redeem Israel. Well, hope's dashed. For them, Jesus' death had spelled a seeming end to that hope. The leaders had handed him over to Rome, the Romans nailed him to the cross, and their flame of hope was extinguished. Where these disciples placed responsibility for Jesus' death is clear, and so is their disappointment. I like how John MacArthur puts it. He says, they can't put Jesus in the messianic box because the Romans killed him and the Jews, the leadership of the Jews, Jews rejected him. That doesn't fit their messianic theology. Triumph, glory, kingdom, power overthrowing enemies, conquering the world, setting up his throne. That's their messianic theology. It's a limited theology, a partial theology. They had no place for suffering and death as a sacrifice for sin, even though that dominates the Old Testament. They had conveniently ignored all of that because they wished for the triumph and the glory, so that's what they focused on. You see, many in Israel believed that the Messiah, the coming Messiah, was to sit on an earthly throne, like David, after all, the promise was that the, the Christ would come through David's lineage. Their expectation was that the Messiah would come and free Israel from Roman oppression. They thought that the burden that he was coming to lift was just that. Jesus challenged them with this question in Luke chapter 20, verse 43. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Hebrews 1.13 tells us that Psalm 110, which Jesus quotes, is about Jesus himself. So then what was the hope that he was supposed to bring? What did Jesus mean when he said in Matthew 11:28 through 30 come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest? 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why would he have said this unless there is a burden that all of mankind carries that in and of ourselves we cannot get rid of on our own? What are we laboring for? Why do we need rest? And what kind of rest do we need? Verse 29 of Matthew 11 tells us, rest for your souls, for our souls. You see, whether we acknowledge it or not, we all want peace in our lives. We want to come to the end of the day, the end of the week, the end of the year, the end of our lives, and feel like we did well, like we added something good to the world, something good came out of our lives. If a person believes there's a heaven, most believe they'll go there because they're essentially good people. They believe since they've done more good than bad in their lives, therefore the scale will then tip in their favor when they stand before God. So they'll attempt to offer Him their works as a means to gain entrance into heaven. But Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that those righteous deeds are nothing more than polluted garments before God. They serve as an attempt to bribe God because if a person is outside of Christ, then all the good that we do is so that we feel good about ourselves, so that we get the glory. We come to the end of the day, the end of the week, the end of the year, the end of our lives, and we want to pat ourselves on the back. And yet the Bible makes it very clear that our works cannot appease us to God. Ephesians 2 says that a person is saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that none of us can boast. And by nature, we're very prideful beings. And if God allowed even a single ounce of our salvation to be our works, we would take that ounce and we turn it into an ocean. And in doing so, we rob God of the glory He deserves. We are bad people who have a great Savior. Jesus came to save bad people. You're not a good person. I'm not a good person. We're bad people with a great Savior. Are good works good? Absolutely. But as a Christian, my good works are because I'm going, ahead, going to heaven, not as a means to get me there. Amen? So Jesus is much more than most of the people in Israel expected their Messiah to be. Back to our story in verse 21. <clears throat> yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day. And since these things, hap- since these things happened... See, Jesus predicted His resurrection several times. No doubt the disciples would have recalled this. Astounding as it may have sounded at the time, either having heard it directly or indirectly. Verses like Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Matthew 17, 22 and 23. Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him, and He will be raised on the third day. Many other verses. And here they are, coming towards the end of the third day, and they themselves have yet to see the risen Christ, or so they thought. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, that if Christ had not been raised, then our faith is in vain. It's futile. In the same chapter, verse 19, he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. It's all a sham. It's a hoax. And we've been duped. Well, the disciples continue in verse 22. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. 
And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. See, their heads had to be swirling, even with their limited understanding of all that Jesus claimed to be and the doubts that they were having. There were still things that they couldn't shake. The things that were reported before they left Jerusalem with regards to those who visited the tomb, like the women who went to the tomb and found it empty, the women who encountered angels and announced that, who announced that Jesus had been risen. Peter and John went to the tomb and also found it empty. But now the story begins to turn. And as I said earlier, Jesus will use this journey to Emmaus to gradually reveal himself to them through the very scriptures that they have read and claim to know. So I want you to start paying closer attention now to the words that are being used over the next few verses. We need to be on the lookout for repetitive words and those that are emphatic. Excuse me. If you recall earlier when verses 1 through 12 were read, and you can look back up to verse 7 there, the angels who spoke to the women at the tomb said that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. I told you I wanted you to make note of that because we'd come back to it, and it's foundational to the main point of this text. What is the emphatic word in that verse? Look at, look at that verse again. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise. What is the emphatic word that you see in that verse? Tell me. Anyone? Must. Must. And I said that it emphasizes the necessity of God's providential plan being fulfilled. In fact, you could read verse 7 like this. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and He must be crucified, and on the third day He must rise. Do you realize that if any of these things did not happen, there would be no hope for any of us? The promises would be unfulfilled, the tomb would not be empty, the debt for sinners would not be paid, and the sting of death would still have its power, and God would be a liar. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. And thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven. Rejoice, right? Well, the second thing I want us to see today is the discovery of of a challenged heart, the discovery of a challenged heart. So like I said, the story begins to turn. And for the second time in this chapter, Luke shows how these events were necessary. Verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is basically a rebuke by Jesus for not believing the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, particularly about his suffering and subsequent glory. Two things should stand out here. Verse, first, uh, verse 25. How much of what the prophets have spoken should they have believed? What does it say? How much? All of it. Second, verse 27. How many of the prophets did he use to interpret to them the things concerning himself? All. 
all the prophets. And a lot of translations also say that he used all the scriptures, like the ESV says, to do the same. Third, in verse 26, what is the emphatic word there? What's the emphatic word that you see in verse 26? Anyone? Should or necessary, right? Necessary. The disciples had been slow to believe. If they had read Isaiah 52 and 53 about the suffering servant and about how he died as a substitute for sinners, or Psalm 16:10 with understanding, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption, or Deuteronomy 18:15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, Psalm 2:7, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 110, verse 1, that I mentioned earlier, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 118, 22 and 23, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, it is marvelous in our eyes. Or Daniel 7, 13 and 14, where the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Just to mention a few. Calvin said, for it ought to be observed here that what is said here was not confined to these two persons, but as a reproof of a common fault. It was intended to be conveyed by their lips to the rest of their companions. So frequently had Christ forewarned them of His death. So frequently had He even discoursed about a new and spiritual life and confirmed His doctrine by the inspired statements of the prophets that He would seem to have spoken to the deaf or rather to blocks and stones. For they are struck with such horror at His death that they know not what hand to turn." What else might he have referred to in the Old Testament about himself? The seed of the woman whose heel was bruised, the blessing of Abraham to all nations, the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Passover lamb, the ultimate kinsman redeemer mentioned in Ruth, the suffering savior of Psalm 22, the good shepherd of Psalm 23, the wisdom of Proverbs. By taking them back to the Scripture, Jesus is noting that what took place was part of God's ordained plan and promise all along. Scripture's promise centers on Jesus. The text, the primary text, is a witness to Jesus. The Bible is all about Jesus. But the flame of their faith that had been extinguished on Golgotha was now beginning to burn with that familiar hope. The hope that Jesus was indeed the Christ. Can this be true? Can he really be raised from the dead? Now here's the thing. What we have in our possession today, the Bible, is the complete canon of Scripture. It's the whole story of God's plan for redemption. In the Old Testament, we see many types and shadows that are revealed throughout, indicating that God is going to provide a Savior. In fact, after the fall, as early as Genesis chapter 3, we see the, verse, the first gospel promise. And over the course of many generations, more and more is revealed. And then, after 400 years of silence and the close of the Old Testament, God reveals who that Redeemer is. And that is provided to us in what we have as the New Testament. And what we need to understand, which I, I think is sometimes easy to overlook, is that 
what Luke is writing here is part of the yet-to-be-completed New Testament. As he writes this, and try, try and grasp this, as he writes this, the canon has not yet been closed. So he's writing this letter, and with each word, more and more of the New Testament is being completed. But those who are in the story, they didn't have what we have today. They didn't have the benefit of knowing what we already know as, as it has been revealed to us. So it's easy to ask, how did they not know? How did they not know it was him? See, they didn't have the four gospel accounts or the li- of the life of Jesus or the epistles written by Paul or John or Peter's letters or Luke's second letter, the book of Acts. None of it. So before we move too quickly to discount these disciples for their lack of faith, by the way, which they certainly had, let us consider how often we fail to trust God and exhibit our own lack of faith, even though we have the entirety of the Scriptures for us today to read on our own. Verse 28 says, So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. MacArthur, again, commenting on this, says, They were so enraptured by his teaching, so riveted to his teaching, this would have been the greatest lesson ever taught. There would never be anything in their life that came even close to this. This is explaining the whole significance of the Old Testament that finds its fulfillment in the coming of Christ, even in his suffering and his death before his kingdom and his glory. And they're just blessed beyond words. There's nothing. There's nothing that produces the joy, the exhilaration, the thrill that the comprehension of Scripture brings to you. That comprehension which is connected to your eternal salvation. The lesson for them, though, is not over. But, as the text shows, it's getting late. So as they get to Emmaus, and the Greek word here is prospeo, prospeo, which literally means to pretend, Jesus acts or he pretends that he would continue on his journey. But they convince him to stay with them. So God's preordained plan has been revealed, and now it's time to reveal the preordained person. Verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. It is in the intimacy of fellowship that Jesus is recognized. And it is not without significance around the supper table that the disciples' eyes are opened as he takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to them in a setting that harkens back to the feeding of the 5,000 or the Last Supper. The disciples realize that they have been talking with the Lord Jesus himself. Was it the way he broke the bread? Maybe. Did they see the nail piercings when he did so? Maybe. Did they finally make the connection that the bloody, broken body on the cross three days earlier truly was the bread of life? Maybe. Were their minds divinely opened? Maybe all these things. But as J.C. Ryle said, we cannot explain this sudden revelation of Christ. The whole transformation is so miraculous that we can only take the words as we find them and must not waste time in attempting to define what is beyond our comprehension. What matters, you see, is that the blindness of verse 16 is now reversed. Their perplexity over recent events is removed. In the breaking of the bread, he reveals himself. 
He reveals Himself to those whose eyes He has opened through the truths of His Word. And this, my friends, is how we get to know Him as well and to understand and to believe all that He has spoken by reading and listening to His Word. Well, after His recognition by the disciples, He disappears. Just as amazing as their recognition of Him was, then poof, He's gone. Jesus is alive. And now all of a sudden, like solving a huge mystery, the entire discussion on the road makes sense. Think of the emotions, the excitement that they must have felt. So they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road, while He opened to us the Scripture? Their encounter with Jesus had been emotional, like a message being sown deep into their souls, stirring inside. And with renewed flame in their hearts, verse 33 says, they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And so the last point on your outline today that I want to make is this. The declaration of a convinced heart. The declaration of, you can also say the declaration of a convicted heart. In the darkness of the night, they make the seven-mile trip back to meet with the apostles and other disciples to share what had happened. And when they arrive, they find the eleven and those who were with them talking themselves of their own experiences. The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Just imagine the flood of emotion in the room as the accounts of Jesus' appearance poured in and they were shared. It must have been like a newsroom full of reporters collecting facts on a, on a breaking story. The room was probably buzzing. And unknown to the two disciples, Jesus had appeared to Simon Peter. And the only mention of this in the New Testament is actually recorded by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.5, Jesus' appearance to Peter himself. I wonder what that conversation would have been like. Remember, just three days prior, Peter had three times denied that he knew Jesus. An interesting note here, by the way, on verse 33, regarding those who were gathering together. The phrase is what is known as a perfect passive participle. I know you didn't think you were going to get an English lesson today, but in the passive, it means that they didn't gather themselves together. That would be an active or reflexive participle, okay? But rather, that they had been gathered together. Somebody else was acting on them. Somebody else or something else is gathering them together. The verb indicates that they had been collected together by some force, initially by the force of fear or doubt or confusion. All these things that they had experienced had acted like a force to gather them together. But above all that is a divine force, as the Spirit of God gathers them together in preparation for something greater. So after hearing the testimony of others, the two tell of how they met the Lord, who was known to them in the breaking of the bread. I think, again, as we consider the importance of paying attention to repetition, that we don't just scroll past what they said. Something profound happened back in Emmaus when their eyes were open. And just a casual reading of this statement leads us to miss the gravity of it. Because now they finally understand that the risen Jesus was the very one who poured out his life for them. And I believe they wanted to make this point clear. And so now the story turns again. Verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? 
See my hands and my feet, that is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Why were they startled at his appearance? A second ago, they were all rejoicing about his resurrection and sharing stories about his appearances that day. And now the word for spirit there in verse 37 can also be translated ghost. So in essence, they thought they were seeing a ghost or something or someone that wasn't really human. So in a sense, it's understandable because his appearance was sudden. And all the people that were there were likely in a locked room. So just as quickly as he vanished in Emmaus is as quickly as he appears in this room. He wasn't there, and then he was there. And Jesus' question actually is rhetorical. Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your heart? He's not looking for a laundry list of answers here. Basically, he's saying this. The tomb was empty. You know that. The grave clothes were there. You know that. The angel spoke to the women. You know that. Simon Peter saw the risen Christ. You know that. The two who walked to Emmaus saw the risen Christ. You know that. So why are you troubled? Why do you doubt? And so in verses 39 and 40, he calms their fears and doubts by showing them his hands and feet, where the nail scars would clearly be visible. They could touch him and know that he had a real human body and that he was not a ghost. And this is where we lose, I think, so much in the English language. Jesus says in verse 39, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Do you know what he literally says there? The Greek word is ego am I. It is I am. That's the phrase that the Apostle John uses over and over in his gospel to declare the deity of Christ. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the vine. And so on. I am is the name of God, Yahweh. I am that I am. So Jesus is saying, see my hands and my feet and know that the one you are looking at is I am. Isn't that amazing? And while they were still in understandable shock, verse 40 says they they disbelieved for joy and were marveling. Do you remember that word from earlier, marveling? Peter's expression as he walked away from the empty tomb. What does it mean to disbelieve for joy? It essentially means this is too good to be true. Pinch me so I know that I'm awake. So giving them one last piece of evidence, he showed them that he could eat food, something that no ghost or spirit could do. And now we come back to the main point of the message and the answer to the question that has been lingering. Was it not necessary? Did it have to play out like this? Could there not have been another way? Once again, let's pay close attention to the emphatic words that are used here to bring this home. Verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms are the three divisions of the Scriptures, or the Hebrew Bible, which we now know as the Old Testament. But two words of emphasis. First word, everything. Everything written about me. Second word, must. 
must be fulfilled. Sound familiar? These are essentially the same words that he told the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in verses 25 through 27. And he's now doing so for the larger group, what he had done for those two, which was to explain the Scriptures. And Luke's words are once again a reminder of divine design, events ordained and carried out by God. Of all that was written about him, Jesus is saying that every single thing had to be fulfilled. No cross, no crown, no death, no life, no punishment, no salvation, no resurrection, no hope. It had to be that way. And verse 45 says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And that is what the Holy Spirit does for all believers. No longer do we look at the Bible in order to find ways to brush it off as unnecessary, irrelevant, contradictory, or to blame God for all the maladies in the world. Instead, we read it, and we memorize it, and we hide it in our hearts that we may know Him better, and that we may know ourselves better, and submit to it, and act upon the truths it contains, and so much more that aligns us with His will. And He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. This is the realization of Old Testament hope. Jesus is showing that He is the completion and the fulfillment of scriptural promise. What God promises, He brings to pass. Three themes make up these verses. Pantheon in Greek, which is the word for suffer, pantheon, Anastani, which is the Greek word for rise, and kirikthani, or keruso, which is the Greek word for herald or proclaim. First, the Messiah had to suffer. Jesus predicted this all along, and it was anticipated by the Scriptures. Second, the Messiah was to be raised. Jesus also predicted this, and the disciples are experiencing this truth even as they are speaking to them, to Him. And third, what began in Jerusalem and continues today, the gospel will be preached to all nations. And verse 47 packs in these five truths. Number one, disciples are commanded to preach the gospel. Again, this began in Acts 2, and it continues through today. Number two, the message is a call to repentance. Since Jesus draws attention to the Old Testament roots of this concept, he's not merely discussing the change of mind that the Greek word metanoia suggests, but the turning that is bound up in the Hebrew concept of repentance. So fully realized, a change of mind will also result in a change of direction. So you don't just stop thinking about the world in a particular way. You actually act on that new way of thinking. Number three, what is offered is the forgiveness of sins. There no longer needs to be enmity between God and man because of our sin. Turning to God through Jesus Christ the debt owed because of our sins against Him is paid in full through the shed blood of His Son. The debt is eternal death in hell under the full wrath of God separated from His love. Christ's payment is eternal life in the loving presence of the Father and the Son in heaven for those who believe. Number four, the authority for it all resides in Jesus' name because He is the risen Christ and the Son of God. And number five, the gospel message is for all nations. It began in Jerusalem, it spread to the Gentiles, and it's to be proclaimed to the end of the earth.
Our text today closes with these words in verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. As one writer put it, with the mission set forth, Jesus calls all of those present His witnesses. They have seen with their eyes and held in their hands the truth that Jesus is alive. So He calls them to this preaching task. They have experienced truth into which angels, kings, and prophets long to look. Great is God's faithfulness. That is the understanding, desire, and assurance Luke longed to leave in the heart of his reader, Theophilus, to whom this book was written. And that is the precious legacy that Luke left to the church, which includes you and I today. Anyone who is born again should be moved with similar emotions the way those on the road to Emmaus were. And all true followers of Jesus Christ should react the same way. We should not be able to contain it. Let your hearts burn within you as you read His Word. Be like the prophet Jeremiah who said, If I say I will not mention Him or speak any more in His name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Look, there are times when God ordains things to happen contrary to our expectations. And those are the times when we're tempted to do our own thing. To doubt His Word. Lose faith. And as a result, we lose sight of Him and who He is. But just because we don't see Him doesn't mean that He isn't there walking with us. We may not recognize Him, but those are not the times to neglect the Word. Rather, those are the times to spend hours looking and longing and praying. That is when you'll begin to recover your sight and see God for who He is. If you're not born again, saved by Jesus Christ, adopted into the family of God, today is the day of salvation. And I would love to speak to you about this after the service. Let's pray.